Welcome back to Instrumental, a podcast that breaks down music psychology research and helps you apply it to your everyday life. Today, we are going back to basics. This episode outlines the auditory pathway, or the steps that relay sensory information in our environment all the way to our brains to perceive what we know as music. Along the way, we're going to cover the basic anatomy of the ear and what brain areas help us understand sound as music. You'll also learn how music therapists are serving individuals that are deaf or hard of hearing and how you can protect your hearing in the future. hearing abilities are pretty amazing. We can perceive sound in a range from 20 to 20,000 hertz, we can perceive the intensity of sounds as quiet as our own heartbeats, and we can identify thousands of different voices and instruments in timbres without even looking at the source of that sound. What makes this all possible is our ear and the auditory pathway. The journey that sound takes from the environment through multiple stages of our ear and brain anatomy and then is perceived and understood as music or a conversation or any of thousands of sources of sounds around us. And this whole process is not something I truly appreciated until I learned all the details. Let's play a little game to demonstrate how amazing our hearing is. I'm going to play a really short clip of music, like really short, like less than a second. And I want you to notice what you can deduce about that music. All right, here we go. Here is clip number one. Here is clip number two. And finally, here's clip number three. Just for fun, let's play this one more time. Each of those clips were half a second long, kind of like when we're flipping through the radio trying to find a good station. Were you able to get a feel for what instruments were playing, what genre of music each one was, and whether you wanted to keep listening? All of that came from this really quick burst of sound. But how did that half second of sound make it from your speaker or earbuds to those higher level judgments you were able to make about the music? Today's episode is going to cover the basics of this journey that sound travels from starting in the world around us all the way to the primary auditory cortex of the brain. The first stage of this journey takes place in the outer ear, but before we get there, let's talk about the basics of sound. Sound itself is just energy that's being transmitted from something moving, and that energy is transmitted through a medium, which is usually air. If you're underwater, the medium is water, of course, but the medium can also be a solid material that transmits energy. For example, astronauts in space can communicate without their radios by touching their helmets together. The vibrating air from astronaut A's mouth vibrates their own helmet, which in turn vibrates astronaut B's helmet, which starts the air in astronaut B's helmet vibrating, which their ear can then perceive. But usually, the sounds we hear are traveling through the medium of air, air that's moving because something else is moving. The first part of our ear is the outer ear, called the pinna, and it is great at catching these sound waves from the environment. The pinna is the most recognizable part of our outer ear. It's what we picture when we think of our ear, 
with all the folds that capture sound. The pinnae, or both of our ears, <laughs> the pinnae sits on the sides of our head and they help us localize where a sound is coming from. If a sound is coming from our right side, then there's going to be a timing delay as the sound reaches around to get to the left side of your head. Experiments have suggested that if you smooth out and get rid of all the folds in our pinnae, this reduces our ability to localize sound. After a pinna captures sounds from all around us, the sound then gets funneled into the ear canal. Here, sound gets amplified and gets channeled to the eardrum. The ear canal also has some protective measures, also known as our earwax or those little tiny hairs in our ear, that keep our ear safe from dust or other foreign objects. From here, the sound arrives at the eardrum, which is a very thin, sensitive membrane that receives and vibrates in response to the sound wave energy being channeled in from the ear canal. The way the eardrum vibrates depends on the frequency of the sound, like if it's a high-pitched sound, then the frequency vibrates faster. And the eardrum also vibrates in response to how intense or loud a sound is. In his book, This Is Your Brain on Music, scientist and musician Daniel Levitin likens the eardrum to a pillowcase being tightly stretched over a bucket, with different people throwing ping-pong balls at the pillowcase. In this metaphor, your job is to figure out where people are throwing the ping pong balls, how quickly they're throwing the balls, whether the people are moving, just by looking at how the pillowcase is moving up and down. It sounds like a pretty impossible task, but it's basically what our brains are doing all the time to process sound, largely from the acoustic vibrations that are moving our eardrums. The eardrum is the boundary between the outer ear and the middle ear, which houses three small bones known together as the ossicles. The lay terms for these three very small bones is the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup based on how they're shaped. These three bones move in conjunction with how the eardrum vibrates, and they also amplify these vibrations. The ossicles' role in increasing the mechanical energy between the eardrum and the inner ear is really important because these vibrations need to be transmitted through a denser fluid in the cochlea, a part of the inner ear. The middle ear is also capable of protecting your hearing from loud noises via something called the stapedius reflex. When you hear a really loud sound, the muscles controlling the eardrum and the ossicles can twist so that the eardrum stiffens and the ossicles rotate in a way so that these structures don't vibrate as much and then lessens their sound amplifying abilities. The stapedius reflex is only in response to ongoing loud noises, and it's not a hearing protection panacea, but it is a small way that your ears are looking out for you. Back to our journey through the ear, though. The ossicles connect to the inner ear at something called the oval window, which separates the middle ear cavity filled with air and the inner ear that's filled with fluid. There are two main parts of the inner ear, the semicircular canals and the cochlea. The semicircular canals are mostly involved in determining our body position, and when you spin around really fast, the fluid in these canals is sloshing around, and this is what makes you feel dizzy. But the semicircular canals aren't really involved in hearing. The other part of the inner ear, the cochlea, is very involved in hearing. The cochlea is spiral-shaped, and it kind of looks like a snail shell that's no bigger than the tip of your little finger. 
If you unrolled this cochlear spiral, you'd find a lot of different parts. There are multiple canals that contain fluids called perilymph and endolymph. Then there's the basilar membrane that's made of relatively stiff fibers. Different parts of the basilar membrane vibrate depending on the frequency of a sound wave. We can say that the basilar membrane is tonotopically organized. The side of the basilar membrane closest to the oval window resonates with higher pitches all the way down to the farthest, most rolled up part of the basilar membrane that resonates with the lowest pitches we hear. Resting on the basilar membrane is something called the organ of corti, which ultimately acts as a transducer that translates the mechanical sound energy up to this point into electrochemical energy by which the brain communicates. And the organ of corti becomes a transducer because it contains thousands of little sensory hair cells called stereocilia. When the basilar membrane resonates with a sound, it moves against the hairs on the organ of corti in a back-and-forth shearing action. And this shearing action is what excites the hair cells, which opens ion channels, releasing neurotransmitters, and passes the electrochemical signal up through the brainstem and up to our brain. That was a lot of information, so let's do a quick summary up to this point. Let's say we're at a concert and the singer sings that last final high note. Her vocal cords singing that pitch cause the air to vibrate in the room that we're sitting in, in the form of a sound wave that is captured by our pinna. The sound wave then gets channeled down the ear canal to our eardrum, gets amplified via the three ossicle bones, then vibrates the oval window and moves the fluid within the cochlea. The moving fluid then gets a certain section of the basilar membrane to vibrate, which then moves in opposition to the little hairs in the organ of corti, causing the corresponding hair cells to move, which finally sets off an electrochemical reaction, letting our brain know that we just heard that last note. But how does that information from the inner ear get up to the primary auditory cortex in the brain? From here, the auditory pathway gets pretty complicated, with the sound information getting processed by several different structures and getting passed between different sides of our central nervous system. When the stereocilia hair cells vibrate, they activate the auditory nerve, which is also known as the eighth cranial nerve. The next stage of the auditory pathway is through the brainstem, a part of our central nervous system connecting our spinal cord to our brain. All the sound information contained in what we hear gets sent off and broken down for processing by several different structures on its way up to the primary auditory cortex of the brain. One of these is the superior olivary complex, which helps process sound localization and creates a spatial map of where sounds are coming from. Another structure is the reticular formation, which has extra connections to our spinal cord, and it's the reticular formation that's responsible for why we reflexively jump when we hear a loud or sudden sound. 
There's also the inferior colliculus, which receives sound information originating on the opposite side of the body and helps with sound integration. And finally, before moving up to the brain, the medial geniculate body, part of the relay station in the brain called the thalamus, provides frequency information processing. Even though the sound information is broken down and different features are processed by different parts of our brainstem up to this point, all that information is brought back together and understood as a whole in the primary auditory cortex. We have two primary auditory cortices, or PACs, um, located on each side of our brain in the temporal lobe, which is located on the side of your head, right beside your ear. The PAC is towards the top of your temporal lobe on an area called the superior temporal gyrus. Each of your two PACs is made up of around 100 million auditory cells, and different units of the PAC respond to different types of sound. The PAC is also tonotopically organized so that sections of the primary auditory cortex are systematically spaced by what pitches they process, similar to the basilar membrane. The PAC is where sound information is first integrated, interpreted, and understood as a whole. For the purposes of this episode, we're going to stop our sound journey here in the primary auditory cortex, but from almost every other episode of Instrumental, we know that there are other association areas across the brain that are involved in further, more specialized responses to music and other sounds that start in the world around us. I know that last part had a lot of jargon, so thanks for sticking with me. The description of the auditory pathway we just covered in this episode, though, is pretty basic compared to how much detail an audiologist could go into about how we hear. But knowing the basics of how we hear is still super helpful to my work as a music therapist. I've worked in a lot of settings where my clients have some kind of hearing difficulty. A lot of my older adults have aging-related hearing loss and use hearing aids, I've also worked with patients with traumatic brain injuries that have impacted how they perceive sound and music, and some music therapists specialize in working with deaf children and children with cochlear implants. Understanding the auditory pathway helps me deduce the possible underlying issues when I'm working with a client that's hard of hearing. For example, my older adult client's hearing loss is usually due to damage to the hair cells on the organ of corti. When we're exposed to sounds that are too intense or too loud for an extended period of time, the hair cells get damaged, kind of like how if you walk over grass over and over again, the grass eventually gets trampled down. When I'm working with these clients, I'll avoid really high-pitched instruments like bells or chimes that they may have a harder time hearing. I'll also avoid playing recorded music with lots of complex layers in favor of a more simple accompaniment, like just voice and guitar, since too many sources of sound can get muddied together with hearing aids. On the other hand, if I were working with a child with a cochlear implant, I would probably use more rhythmic, percussion-based interventions. Cochlear implants are small electronic devices that give basic hearing abilities to people who are profoundly deaf by being surgically implanted and connecting directly to the auditory nerve that provides the electrical stimulation needed to perceive sounds. But from what I understand, cochlear implants are designed to help users understand speech and don't translate the complex pitches and timbres that are contained within music. 
So depending on the individual's hearing perception and goal areas, I imagine that a client with congenital hearing loss would be more successful in interventions that feature a strong rhythmic or timing element. For everyday life, though, understanding the intricate process of hearing has led me to have a deeper appreciation for my ability to hear music, and it makes me want to protect my hearing for the future. So this episode's practical takeaway is pretty much a public service announcement to protect your hearing, which is not an easy task in our sound-filled modern world. There's a good chance you actually already have hearing loss, as much as I hate to say that. On YouTube, there are videos that play these progressively higher tones that you should be able to perceive at certain ages, but even I have trouble hearing the higher frequencies that I should be able to hear as a young adult. There's a link to one of these videos in the show notes on our website if you're interested in trying it out for yourself. Unfortunately, hearing loss is irreversible and can be really isolating if it starts interfering with your ability to hear others in conversation, which is pretty common with the older adults I work with. Even if you haven't made protecting your hearing a priority up until now, the best time to make a change is today. The first step is often just being mindful of the volume of the soundscape that you're in. I'm totally guilty of turning up my music to drown out other noises when I'm in the gym or even just driving in my car, but adding more sound isn't doing good things for my long-term hearing prospects. It can be as simple as just turning down the volume on my earbuds a click or two when I'm at the gym or when I'm in my car. Or if you're in a loud environment like a restaurant or a bar and especially concerts, consider investing in some earplugs, which can range from simple foam or wax ones all the way up to customized electronic earplugs that turn on automatically in response to loud sounds. Whatever option works best for you, your hearing is definitely worth preserving. Thanks for listening. For show notes with more information on the research, resources, and music featured in today's episode, go to our website, instrumentalpodcast.com, and get the latest news and updates on Facebook or Twitter, and I will see you next time.